is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Ken Charles, sitting in for Mike Simpson from the KNX studios in Los Angeles. The CDC is now recommending that even vaccinated people mask up indoors. Finally, to some, you know, I can't understand why to others. And they're only doing it in parts of the country with, quote, high rates of COVID-19 transmission. And and my guess is that that those who used to wear masks will do so again, and those who never wore masks will still not wear masks. That is correct, including when you're walking your dog in restaurants. And the people who are offended by masks are going to make the same scenes they made back in March of this year. Due to the pandemic, by the way, some low-income students, they are choosing, get this, work. Yes, work instead of college. Uh, you know, okay, good. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, it makes sense. You know, it's money. You know, well, listen, when we were young, they said things like, college isn't for anyone. Right. Or everyone. Everyone, yes. I guess now we're finding out that today's generation feels the same way. Yeah. Plus, we've heard a lot about emergency use and full authorization of the FDA um, for the COVID vaccine. But what do those actually mean? And here's something that's kind of interesting, too, that we'll talk about, which is that for all those uh, students that are choosing to work, right, instead of going to school, the pandemic is forcing many Americans who are working to leave their jobs because they are rethinking their careers. (sighs) Yeah, I understand. <laughs> you know, I think everybody at one moment during this pandemic absolutely said, I think maybe it's time for me to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but let's start with the CDC reversing course. A few weeks ago, they said it was okay for vaccinated Americans to ditch their masks. And you know what? We all did. But now the CDC is recommending that everyone, regardless of vaccination status, mask up indoors in much of the country. And a vaccine mandate for federal workers could be just around the corner. Dr. Michelle Mello is a professor of law and medicine at Stanford Law School. Doctor, is it time for a vaccine mandate? And if so, would that mandate be legal? They are legal. And I think that the main area of doubt has been about whether they are legal when the product only is marketed under an emergency use authorization, as the COVID vaccines currently are. Recent federal guidance help was very helpful in clarifying that, indeed, that should not be viewed as a barrier. The question is, who are they legal for um, and under what conditions? So, again, you said off the top, just want to make sure I got, heard this right. You said they are not legal the way they stand right now without the federal they, federal approval. No, that's that's not correct. Oh, they oh, are sorry. legal. They that are that legal. guidance that came out this week helped to resolve an area of legal uncertainty. The federal government, Department of Justice, weighing in in favor of saying, regardless of whether they are fully approved or under an EUA, uh, they may be imposed. Okay, so so you're saying they are legal as it stands right now, and I take it then to take it a step further. Once once the FDA uh, gives full approval, that will make it that much more of a moot point. I think that's right. That takes one issue that opponents are arguing about off the table. So that, of course, leads to the question, uh, is it just a lack of, of uh, at the uh, uh, government level, a lack of political will to mandate them? And at the corporate level, a lack of companies having the backbone to do what seems to be the thing that needs to be done at this point? 
Well, as I alluded to before, one question is who gets to impose the mandate, and the federal government does have some restrictions on its ability to do so, because by historical fact, um, this authority primarily lies with the states. So the federal government can impose mandates for areas that are within its jurisdiction, but it would struggle to find a legal ground for a national mandate. And that leads to states, and we're all very much aware that the states are a patchwork in terms of where their thinking lies about mandates, with some uh, likely beginning to think about this in a serious way, some having already imposed some version of a vaccination requirement with some type of consequence attached to it, although not a genuine mandate, and some um, bound now by their legislatures not to impose mandates, legislation having been passed that prohibits that. Now let's get to the CDC and their decision, or at least they're saying that they're pushing towards a mask decision of some kind, possibly for uh, indoor locations across the country. Uh, Where do you stand on that from a legal standpoint? You know, I've been looking at this a lot over the last few days, watching what's been going on with Delta. And I I think there's little argument with the fact that that caution should lead us to get masks back on at this point when we are in crowded indoor spaces. In terms of whether that should be translated into a mask mandate, you know, policymakers are weighing four factors that are coming together in a pretty concerning way right now. The first is the surging number of cases across the country. The second is some areas of uncertainty about the Delta variant, the new variant of the virus that now comprises 90% of U.S. cases. One area of uncertainty is how effective the vaccines are against Delta. We have conflicting reports and still very early in the evidence base about that. And the second is how big a risk of transmitting the disease to others do vaccinated people pose. CDC reporting out this week, they've got some new evidence on that front that concerns them, even though the vaccines provide those individuals with very, very strong protections against getting really sick, doesn't mean they can't transmit the virus to others. The third issue is, as we all know, very much plastic towing vaccination rates around the country. And then finally, the lack of any universal system for certifying who's had the vaccine. When we don't have that and mask mandates are removed, it's very hard to know whether the people who must be wearing masks at this point, unvaccinated persons, are doing so. Do you think uh, that a lot of uh, the confusion that the public has, and there clearly is a lot of confusion out there in the public, is because of bad messaging uh, that people perhaps don't quite get that what they may perceive as being, you know, the CDC flip-flopping uh, or changing its position is because as the data changes and the science changes, then obviously you have to change things. But I'm wondering if that message is really getting across to people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there was room to improve the way that their decision a couple of months ago to lift the masking recommendation for vaccinated persons was was done. But I think you're right that even when they get their messages very clear, it's difficult for people to understand and accept that sometimes policy decisions have to change because evidence changes and we are in a very dynamic situation. There are also a lot of people around the country who are making their name in mass media and social media, uh, characterizing these changes in policy positions as flip-flops rather than as science doing what it is supposed to do, which is to change recommendations as we learn more. Dr. Mello, I think a lot of people saw the video from France over the weekend. Very ugly, dangerous protests there. People really upset about the mask mandates going back. I know I'm concerned. I think a lot of people are concerned about seeing that on our streets as well. Uh, Your thoughts on that? 
you know, I think there's a segment out there in the population whose feelings have hardened in a bewildering and perhaps irreversible way. And they may well find the need to express themselves in the streets again. But I think the overwhelming majority of Americans understand what is going on here, that we are up against something very serious with Delta and that masking, well, it might be annoying, among the possible ways that we have in our toolkit to address the virus is very minor in terms of the burdens on individuals. It's certainly a lot better than being stuck at home, having businesses and schools closed again. So I'll take that over the alternatives any day. But I think the most important thing for people to understand is that there is only one way out of this, and that's to get more people vaccinated. Dr. Michelle Mello, professor of law and medicine at Stanford Law School. Dr. Mello, thank you. We're dealing with an unexpected effect of the pandemic, a very steep decline in the number of applications for financial aid to attend college. Now, it looks like a number of low-income high school students, they are choosing work over school when they graduate. Wow, that is a surprise. There was a 5% decline in the number of financial aid applications for the class of 2021 compared to last year's high school graduates. Maura Lee Keller is Director of Technical Assistance at the National College Attainment Network. Maura Lee, do you think this is part of a longer-term trend, or is it mostly due to the pandemic? I hope it is a short-term trend. Um, As we know, there are lots of um, open jobs around the country right now, particularly those with... um, low skills required. And so families that may have had some type of economic impact during the pandemic, um, students may be going to work instead of choosing a post-secondary path in order to provide some financial assistance to their families. So, as you know, a lot of uh, colleges around the country, uh, especially not the, you know, the, the Ivy League ones, are wanting for students. Are they going to fight back? I think uh, it will vary kind of by sector. I think some of the more um, selective, highly selective colleges probably have filled their classes. I think um, many of the four-year public institutions and particularly the community college sector probably have lots and lots of spaces for students for this fall term. A college degree will always be important, but is a college degree as vital now as it once was, or are businesses looking for more real-life experiences? I think it's a little bit of a combination, but I think as we see all the research that comes out that talks about the future of jobs and what type of training will be required, um, and we see you know, some numbers, well over 60% of jobs of the future are going to require some kind of post-high school training. So whether that's um, going to a technical center, a community college, a four-year institution, I think for many students to be on uh, a path that will help them be economically self-sufficient, some type of post-high school training is going to be necessary. So the schools most impacted by students sort of diverting, potential students diverting their efforts into the world of work as opposed to the world of academic pursuits are what, uh, by and large, community colleges? Uh, Yes, the National Student Clearinghouse's enrollment report from last fall indicated that the community college sector took uh, the largest hit in terms of drop uh, of enrollment. How concerning is it from your standpoint, as we mentioned in the introduction, that the steep decline we're seeing in the applications is especially among lower income high school students? That creates a grave concern for us at NCAN. Um, our programs and uh, that we serve are highly dedicated to low income, first generation 
um, and minority students pursuing some type of post-secondary path. So when we see numbers, particularly around the the financial aid form um, that the low-income students or those that come from high minority percentage high schools were more greatly impacted than the national average. It is concerning. We are know we're going to have to help those students claw their way back and perhaps get students who got off the path to some type of post-secondary training back on the path. And how would you intend to do that? I see our programs, I see state agencies, I see everybody pulling out every stop and being as creative as they can, trying to meet students in a sense and their families where they're at uh, in terms of um, letting them know that there are still post-secondary options available to them. Everything from drive-through financial aid workshops to uh, you know, doing presentations in movie theaters, anything that will um, get the necessary information to the students and the families to get them back on track for college. Morley, is, is this more of an issue in certain parts of the country than in others? And I guess I'm wondering about <laughs> California, Southern California. Um, it, it is everywhere. There were only a couple states in this country who ended up for their seniors, for their class of 21, who had a little bit higher FAFSA completion rate than the class of 20, all the remaining states uh, were below where they were last year. And California, unfortunately, is in that list. Um, California, uh, as we see it as of early July, the class of 21 from California filed a little over 7% less FAFSAs than the class of 2020. So California is amongst those who have taken uh, a hit in this area. Morley Keller, Director of Technical Assistance at the National College Attainment Network. Morley, thank you. When we continue, how do the COVID-19 vaccines get full approval from the FDA? Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines have what's called emergency use authorization from the FDA. Now, there's hope that in the coming months, the uh, FDA will get uh, or give the vaccines full authorization. You know, and you've probably seen a number of unions and others around the country are using the quote-unquote emergency use status of the vaccine to say it shouldn't be mandated, it should be a personal choice. But what do those terms really, really mean? Matt Leon is with KYW in Philadelphia. He spoke with Dr. Charles Cairns. He's the Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs at Drexel University's College of Medicine about the difference between the two types of authorizations. Well, there are two essential ways that the FDA can make vaccines available to people in the United States. One is through the emergency use authorization. And this is a process wherein the FDA evaluates data on a product, in this case vaccines, and authorizes its emergency use for a particular period of time to a very select patient group. Full FDA approval means that it's undergone all the regulatory requirements for full FDA approval, which means not only understanding how something was manufactured and where it was done and all the processes behind it, but of course, looking at all those data that are necessary to show that something is safe and effective. How unusual is the use of emergency use authorization? You know, it's relatively unusual. Um, And clearly there has to be a context that would justify its use. And in this case, the COVID-19 pandemic was deemed to be one of those situations. Does emergency use, and I think you may have referenced this early in your answer, 
Does it expire at a certain point? Is there a certain point where that is revoked or it automatically goes to full approval? Uh, is there a time frame on emergency use? My understanding is that emergency youth authorization should be for a limited period of time. But as to having a specific time frame, I don't believe that's the case. Um, certainly, there hasn't been any discussion about that for the current COVID-19 vaccines. It is a separate process and potentially can be parallel uh, process for full FDA approval. So there is a distinction there. And once you get into the full FDA approval cycle, then there are some regulatory deadlines. Now, this is one of those things I think most of the public had no idea that either of these things existed until the COVID-19 pandemic. So you get a lot of people talking about why is this FDA full approval taking so long? Is this unusually long? Or once again, is it because we don't pay attention to this stuff and don't understand how it works, that it's going along its normal timeline? <laughs> Probably a combination of all three. Um, I do think uh, that people uh, haven't been aware of this uh, because it frankly hasn't been a big issue uh, in the past. Um, one, we have this once in a century pandemic. Um, we have a totally novel or new uh, virus that's now circulating around the United States in the world. And so that's a very unusual event. Uh, the second one is, is that we've had the opportunity to do something we couldn't do before, which was be able to recognize this new virus, do the genetic sequence or understand how the virus is put together within a month of its uh, disclosure. And then the new technology to develop vaccines literally within three months that allowed for a totally new vaccine against a new virus to be developed and started being tested so quickly. And I think those are all very unusual. I think the other component that makes it unusual is the fact that the vaccine production was scaled up so quickly. So not only was the vaccine developed quickly, it was authorized quickly, but the production's remarkable uh, to have a billion doses, right, of an mRNA vaccine against COVID-19 all done within a year, year and a half uh, is unprecedented. So I could see how people might uh, not be familiar with the various ways that vaccines are developed, how they're regulated, how they're authorized and how they're approved. All that being said, from what you know about the process, and I think we've started to hear some talk about this. When would you expect FDA full approval for, and I will say the COVID-19 vaccines, I will throw them all under the same umbrella. Uh, I would figure it would all kind of come relatively close to one another for all of them. But please correct me if I'm incorrect on that. Well, it's a great question. And obviously, people should be asking uh, uh, that question uh, now that the vaccine has been so widely distributed and frankly, so intensely studied. I do believe another unprecedented uh, aspect of the COVID-19 vaccines is how closely they've been studied, having almost universal uh, a kind of registration of people who've gotten it in the United States. I'm a healthcare worker, so I received it in that first wave. And I'm still queried on how I'm doing, uh, looking for any side effects or, or any changes due to the vaccine. This is something that's truly remarkable in terms of the depth and breadth uh, of the investigation of the uh, vaccine. So I think that given all that, uh, there's been a lot of data. 
And for example, Pfizer and BioNTech, that was the first vaccine to receive emergency youth authorization, had to submit a lot of data to the FDA. In addition, the FDA has also been receiving reports on the administration of the vaccine to all these individuals. And it's not just in the United States, it's wherever they receive it across the world. So there have been millions and millions of people now who've received this vaccine. And so the data needed uh, to assess things like efficacy or how well it works uh, against the vac- uh, against the virus infections, and they've even extended it to things like keeping people out of the hospital or keeping people from dying. Now we have a lot of data over a fairly long period of time. So that process, though, for formal approval, so this is full FDA approval, does start with a submission uh, of all that data in a format that's consistent with the regulations and that allows for full approval to be assessed. And that process uh, started in May for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, and that was on May 10th. Um, There's also an expectation under a federal statute that that answer be received within six months. So you would then extrapolate that, um, that it should be done um, within this time period. Now, obviously, there are some additional data requests. There has to be a certain period of time after it's administered to a certain population. And so the deadline, if you will, to get approval based on that submission is January of 2022. Um, My understanding of uh, the Moderna vaccine is that they have been putting in this information, but they're probably about a month or so behind the Pfizer timeframe. You know, during the uh, pandemic, uh, life has changed for so many different ways for people, right? Uh, So much so that many Americans, of course, they lost their jobs and some voluntarily said, you know what, it's time to change careers. Some are calling it the Great Resignation. Cisco Cotto of WBBM in Chicago spoke with Rick Robb. He's the executive vice president of Keystone Partners, and he talked about the many, many people across this country leaving their current jobs. If you look at the those surveyed, and those surveys tend to be anonymous, uh, is it like a, as high as 30 to 40 percent of the workforce says they're going to go somewhere else. I think that's not the reality uh, because an anonymous survey isn't really reflective of what I will do, more of how I feel. So we were talking about people who uh, are are either feeling or doing something differently. And is the pandemic really the impetus here? Is that what's causing people to reevaluate things? I I think people have to make their own decision. And that's not a cop out. You know, many people who decide they want to leave haven't really looked at the reason for it. Is it money? Is it the environment? Is it the geography? Is it the the difficulty of the work, the hours? And many of those are valid reasons. But, you know, embedded in that is how you feel and has that changed? So the calculus people need to do when they're thinking about this is what's good about where you are now and what's bad? And how has that changed in the last three years? Was it was it is it different now than it was And do you have any theories for why that's changed? Because you can't leave your problems behind often. They just pack their own bag and come along with you. And so if COVID COVID fatigue and the stress and uncertainty of what you've been going through, you're not going to get over that. And and certainly going to a new job where the stress is higher and the expectations and perhaps even the working environment expectations are, are more demanding 
isn't going to reduce your stress. So you have to make the decision about if you really want to go and why. I appreciate you saying that, Rick, because I I think there are a lot of people who feel like I'm under a lot of stress. I'm not sleeping well, not eating well, not exercising well, all this stress. And it's got to be my job. I don't have the satisfaction in my job. And yet, if if that's not really the problem, they're going to leave. And it could be a huge mistake for them. You know, it's really interesting, Cisco. I had a chance to go about a month ago to a, a job fair in a, in, a, in a very low employment manufacturing environment. And uh, the people that we would talk to wanted to know what we would pay. And this was, a, I was working with somebody who had a manufacturing company. And they all made incredible money and they all hated where they were working. So it's not money. At least, in, at least it's often not money. And I think that's, that's the thing that we have to think about. What are the other benefits of the job you have now? And are those things going to improve, get worse, or remain the same in that transition? And then you're the new kid. And, you know, it's last in, first out is the way organizations typically make changes. What do you do as an employer if you do have to deal with this sort of wave of people not coming back? How do you handle this? Because you want to get employees, you want them to be good employees, and yet you're in an environment where salaries are having to go up in order to attract them. You know, it's really tough. And if you look at, I, I was looking recently at the, the top companies in the U.S. and then the ones that had the lowest turnover rates. Now, granted, these are some very big companies who probably have very deep pockets, but you can do smaller versions of this. It's not money. You know, if you look at, say, a General Mills, if you work at General Mills, you can take your laundry to work. You can get your car service. You can get packages wrapped. You can get your nails done. You pay for it, but you don't have to go anywhere. And they subsidize infant care for children from six weeks and up. Now, these are all problematic in COVID. And certainly if you're, you know, if you're running a coffee shop or a a single restaurant, it's very difficult to do that. But what sorts of things can you do as an employer to make the people that work for you feel valued in some way other than just paying them? Because pay is transactional. If I asked you to come over and, 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 uh, and help me change my tire and we're neighbors, you might do it. If I said I'd pay you five bucks, you'd slam the door in my face. You know, so you need to build relationships. It's very difficult to do that if your company has never been like that because your employees are unlikely to believe that the change is real. Just for the record, Rick, I will come change your tire for five dollars. <laughs> just, just so you know. <laughs> no, you know you will. Well, but if you do it, I hope I hope we never have that problem because I don't feel I mean, it'd probably be you instead of me. I don't think I'm very good at changing. That's what I can say. I can make that offer because I know you're never gonna really ask me. <laughs> All right. Have a great day. All right, the gauntlet's, the gauntlet's thrown. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Rick Cobb, right, Executive bye-bye. Vice President at Keystone Partners here in Chicago. We've uh, spoken about whether or not we need stricter mandates here in America to deal with the latest COVID surge caused by the Delta variant. In Saudi Arabia, the government is imposing a three-year travel ban on citizens who go to countries with lots of COVID cases on the kingdom's so-called red list. Saudi Arabia's state news agency says that anyone who violates the new rule will be subject to legal accountability and heavy penalties upon their return and will be banned from travel for three years. Saudi Arabia does not mess around. No, when you say heavy penalties in the United States, that means no TV in your cell. (laughs) Yeah. In Saudi Arabia, (laughs) heavy penalties are penalties that are really, really, really penalties. They are strict. Three three years. You know what? They're not messing around. No, 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 no. You know, (laughs) hey, what can I say? You know what I can say? You can find this original podcast 
and others. And by the way, if you don't, there are heavy penalties involved. <laughs> Go to odyssey.com, the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And be sure again, under threat of very heavy penalties, be sure to hit the subscribe button. And if you're listening to this in Saudi Arabia, stay put. Yeah, don't go. (laughs) 